There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Different religions define the nature of human beings in a variety of ways. The opinions are so unique and so diverse, they cannot be reconciled and blended together into one belief system. So all the following views that I'm going to share cannot all be true. We're going to distinguish right from wrong. However, we can learn a lot about various belief systems by comparing their foundational doctrines in this important area. Let's start with Buddhism. The Buddha taught the doctrine of anatta, that human beings do not have an immortal soul. Instead, he insisted that we are made up of five aggregates called skandhas that assemble at birth and disassemble at death. And those five skandhas are physical form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Let me go through that again. The physical form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. These are all impermanent and only temporarily connected to each other. In the process of reincarnation, no soul passes from one incarnation to the next, according to the Buddha's teachings. Rather, new aggregates come together to form a new living being. The only thing that passes from one incarnation to the next is something that has been termed an unconscious disposition. There's two other things about Buddhism that need to be included. First, the teaching that there are four chakras or energy centers within human beings. That's opposed to the idea of seven chakras, which is the dominant belief in Hinduism. Also, the Buddha taught that everyone is a potential Buddha, which means an enlightened person. Also, the caste system that we're going to touch on in Hinduism was rejected by Buddha. Let's move on to Hinduism. In this religion, humans are comprised of three primary parts. Number one, the gross body, which is the physical body. Number two, the subtle body. And number three, the causal body. The last two are divided into three parts or sheaths surrounding the soul. So there are actually seven primary parts to each human being. The causal body contains the idea template for the gross body and the subtle body, a kind of predetermined form or personality. Every human has an Atman, meaning God within, a divine essence. And in Hindu philosophy, the Atman is one with Brahman, and Brahman is the oversoul, the impersonal energy force that fills the universe and out of which the universe was emanated. 
and the belief among some Hindus, certainly not all. Some are dualistic. They do not believe in an ultimate reality that is impersonal. But most Hindus tend to believe that Atman and Brahman are one and the same, that the individual Atman in every human being is a manifestation of God, an emanation of God. However, when the Atman is personalized, when it becomes an individual human being, it is then called a jiva. That's J-I-V-A. The Atman is not confined by time, space, causality, name, or form. But these five things bind and, in a sense, blind the jiva creating a condition of temporary delusion. The individual believes that he really is or identifies with the human personality and body and name assigned to him or her. And so that has to be overcome in order to achieve an enlightened state. All right, what about the yoga school within Hinduism? In that part of Hindu theology, Human beings are described as having seven chakras. Chakras are energy centers. They've never been proven scientifically to actually exist. However, many believe they are literal. Seven chakras or energy centers within the spiritual makeup of a human being. The one that is most recognizable by people or the one that is most well-known is the third eye, which is supposedly positioned in the middle of the forehead. And above it is the crown chakra. Also, it is taught that there is a coiled energy, a divine essence at the base of the spine called the kundalini, which is a word that means serpent power, which is a reference to its coiled position, like a serpent is coiled. But then like a serpent strikes, it rises up through the spine and through the chakras, through various processes like yoga, asanas, and pranayama, which are breathing exercises, meditation, and various rituals, and mantra yoga, which is the chanting of mantras. Through all of these various religious practices, the kundalini is supposedly aroused until it merges with the crown chakra, and that's when God consciousness is attained. But that means within the framework of Hinduism, a conscious awareness that the individual actually is God, that Atman is a manifestation of Brahman, which is the antithesis of the truth in Christianity, the absolute opposite of what Christian doctrine states. But we'll get to that in just a little while. Let's uh, also visit something called the caste system in Hinduism. I believe it's important to just touch upon it. According to teachings found in the Bhagavad Gita, in fact, Krishna states that he actually originated the caste. There are four different divisions First, the Brahmins, who are the priests, the Kshatriyas, which are the nobles. Third is merchants and farmers. And the fourth is Sudras, who are manual laborers, peasants, and servants. Supposedly, according to their teachings, these originated from four parts of the body of Brahma, 
who is the creator god. The Brahman priestly caste proceeded from Brahma's head. The nobles or Kshatriyas came from his arms. The Vaisyas came from his thigh. And the Sudras, the servants, came from his feet. And then far beneath the Sudras are the untouchables, Harijans, who were rejects from the social order altogether. However, Mahatma Gandhi referred to them as the children of God, and uh, he sought in 1949 to have the Indian parliament make the practice of assigning people to various castes an illegal thing. However, it's still very much a part of Hindu belief and culture. Now let's move on to Islam. Islam teaches that human beings are bipartite, meaning they have two parts, a body and a soul. It's also believed in Islamic doctrine that human beings become sinners by sinful deeds only. They do not inherit a sinful status from the foreparents of the human race, Adam and Eve, whom they recognize, similar to biblical doctrine, but they have a belief that is different than anything you find biblically, and that is that Adam and Eve were made from a single soul. That's unique. Let's move on to Judaism. Jews do not identify the serpent in the Garden of Eden as Satan, nor do they believe that Adam and Eve's transgression in the beginning caused a fallen state into which human beings are born automatically stained or contaminated with something that in Christianity is called original sin. Human beings instead have two different inclinations, Yezer Tov, which is a good inclination, and Yezer Ra, which is an evil inclination. And we must all choose between the two. But human beings are born basically good, and they can become good people if they choose to. It's also important to see the spiritual makeup that is defined in Judaism. Human beings have a nephesh, that's N-E-P-H-E-S-H, which is a life force, something that animals possess too. But human beings also possess a neshama, which is what entered into Adam with the breath of God when he became a living soul. Kabbalistic teaching, or teaching from the Kabbalah, which is apart from the accepted biblical teaching, insists that on the Sabbath, Jews acquire a second soul. Neshama Yetra is the name of that second soul in order to fully enjoy and experience that blessed and holy Shabbat. Now let's move forward to Sikhism. Sikhism is a religion that was founded by Guru Nanak, who was born in a predominantly Hindu and Muslim culture, but his belief system broke away from Hinduism in many significant ways. And in Sikhism, man is not born with a sinful nature, but he does have a divine potential. He is the temple of God. Now, of course, that is a belief that within every human being, there is an indwelling of the divine essence, a spark of divinity, if you will. 
Unique to Sikhism, though, is the belief that there are 10 abodes within each human being. Nine of those abodes correspond to the nine natural openings in the body. The tenth abode is the superconscious mind, which is a spiritual opening in which is lodged the Lord who is limitless and unknowable. In Sikhism, even though it's an offshoot of Hinduism, the caste system is rejected, just as it was in Buddhism. Now let's move to another Oriental religion, Taoism, the ancient religion of China. There are some very, very unique beliefs in Taoism. First of all, in that Oriental religion, the vital essence of creation is called qi. Sometimes it's pronounced qi. And as the qi flows through creation in diverse expressions, so also it flows through the body in varied ways by means of numerous invisible meridians. This is taught in the practice of Tai Chi, but it is not provable scientifically. There have been many studies, but none have come to the conclusion that the meridians actually exist. Now, at birth in Taoism, this internal energy called Qi or Qi is separated into three components, generative Qi, which is called Qing, vital Qi, and spirit energy, which is called Shin. I think it's also important to see that Qi is expressed in creation and in human beings in two main ways, and that's the complementary opposites of yin and yang. You have yin Qi and yang Qi, and because of this, each individual is described as possessing two kinds of souls. Now, remember, the yin is the dark teardrop-like object, and the yang is the white teardrop-like object in the circle that produces the symbol of Taoism, which is the yin-yang symbol. Because of the belief that there is both darkness and light in the source of all things, there is therefore both darkness and light, good and evil, in every human being. So, that leads to the belief that each human being has ten souls. Three of those are referred to as Hun souls, H-U-N, made up of Yang Chi, which represents the positive, spiritual, intellectual essence of a person. That's the white teardrop in the yin-yang symbol. And then uh, every individual also has seven Po souls, that's P-O, seven Po souls that are made up of yin chi, which is the inferior, lower aspect of the human nature. Strangely, the three yang souls are located beneath the liver, and according to Taoist doctrine, they look like human beings, and they all wear green robes with yellow inner garments. Their names are spiritual guidance, inner radiance, and dark essence. And if these dominate a person's character and actions, then demonic activity is restrained and troubles, misfortunes, and suffering are averted. So a person has to yield to the influence 
of the three Hun souls. I know this gets very in-depth and detailed and complicated, but I wanted you to understand that worldview. The seven material souls, which are called Po souls, consist of the energy of yin and of evil. And they are basically demons, according to Taoist teaching. They can make a person commit deadly evils, and through them, people will completely lose all original purity and simplicity. These souls, far from looking like human beings, are strangely formed, devilish-looking creatures. And their names are Corpse Dog, Arrow in Ambush, bird darkness, devouring robber, flying poison, massive pollution, and stinky lungs. Those are the seven souls, the lower nature. And these material souls draw men toward defilement and depravity, yet they are necessary for physical survival. If these souls dominate a person, the ultimate end is illness and death. And the only remedy is responding to the influence of the higher souls and striving toward those things that lead to immortality. And there's a lot more detail in Taoist doctrine concerning different aspects of the internal nature of human beings, including numerous palaces in the body that provide dwelling places for various deities, such as nine palaces in the head. And there are yin-type beings that dwell in every human being, primarily the three death-bringers. And if you want to know more details about Taoist belief concerning the internal spiritual makeup of human beings, you should look it up in my book, In Search of the True Light. I've just touched on it. Now let's go to Zoroastrianism, the Persian religion that is not very well known, but it has some very unique beliefs concerning the nature of man. It's believed that human beings are triune in nature. They have a body and a soul. But unique to Zoroastrianism is the idea that the third aspect of a human being is a pre-existent divine essence called a fravashi. That's F-R-A-V-A-S-H-I. And this is the higher self, similar to the Atman in Hinduism. This is the higher self, which is one with Ahura Mazda, who is the god of righteousness in Zoroastrianism. There are two gods in that religion, Angra Menu, which is the god of darkness, and Ahura Mazda, who is the god of righteousness and light. So the Fravashi is that divine influence within every human being that guides them into the path of righteousness. And in making choices between right and wrong, good and evil, each person is obligated to consult with his fravashi. And uh, that is similar to, but certainly different from, what a Christian would call the conscience. Now let's go to Christianity and offer a contrast to all of the religions that I've just talked about. In Christianity, human beings are tripartite. That means they have three parts— 
body, soul, and spirit. And each one of those three parts is also triune in nature. The body is made of flesh, bones, and blood. And the soul is made up of mind, will, and emotions. The spirit is made up of three functions, communion with God, revelation from God, and conscience. Now, let me back up to the soul, made up of mind, will, and emotions. Every human being has a functional soul, but it is a defiled soul because of the fallen state, an inherited state from Adam and Eve. By one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, the scripture states in Romans chapter 5. And so it is believed that the fallen state of separation from God and contamination with carnal attitudes and a lower nature is passed from generation to generation. We are conceived in iniquity and born in sin, according to David's writings in Psalm 51. But there is an answer and there is a solution. All human beings have a functional soul, which is made up of mind, will, and emotions. However, the mind is contaminated with evil thoughts, and there are dominating strongholds of patterns of thinking that are wrong and place a person in a state of enmity with God, separation from godly ways of thinking. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Also, emotions are contaminated and subject to a variety of negative things like depression and fear and self-condemnation and guilt and all of the dark emotions that we face as human beings. And the will, which every human being has, has been tremendously weakened by the fallen state, making us very vulnerable to satanic influence and to the influence of the lower nature. Human beings also have a spirit, but that spirit prior to salvation is dead in trespasses and sins. In the old covenant, men responded to God's word by trying to live up to the law, live up to the 613 commandments of the Torah, and to be right with God by the strength of human will connected to the truth, which certainly had a beneficial effect, but it was not God's best for us. And that came through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, where he made a way for Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27 to be fulfilled. In that passage, God promised that in the new covenant to come, he would put a new spirit in his people. He would give us a new heart, take out of us the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, and he would put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his statutes. In other words, there would be such a divine influence within us that it would empower us to walk in his commandments and to be pleasing in his sight, aligned with his will in our lives. That's the born-again experience. And in the born-again experience, well, actually, the word again in John chapter 3 
when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, is the Greek word anathen that also means from above. It's translated from above many times because when a person is born again, you are born from above. A new spirit enters into you. God doesn't take the old corrupted spirit and just try to fix it. He gives you a brand new spirit infused with the righteousness of God. You become the righteousness of God. You hunger and thirst after righteousness, and Jesus said you will be filled. If you're filled with righteousness, that's not something you do. It's something God does. He fills you with his own personality so that becoming godlike is a far more accessible process and goal to reach. It's wonderful what God provides in Christianity. And so when that takes place, when we receive a new spirit, we also receive the gift of eternal life. And we walk in communion with God from that point. See, prior to salvation, the spirit is almost completely non-functional. Communion with God is cut off. It's no longer possible. Man can't decide he's going to connect with God on his own terms. Revelation from God is just about non-existent unless God chooses to bridge the gap, which from time to time he may do. The only partially functional thing in a fallen human being in the spirit is conscience. And the word conscience comes from a Greek word that means to see completely. The very essence of the meaning of the word, though, is co-perception, which means you learn to see things like God sees things. Now, in the fallen state, the conscience is like a barely burning ember where there used to be a raging bonfire. But when you get saved, the Bible says the conscience is purged from dead works to serve the living God. So it's reawakened to a sensitive state where you become far more sensitive to what pleases God and what displeases God. Now, I'm sure you can see that the Christian point of view, the New Testament revelation of the nature of man is far different than the other religions that I've mentioned. And let me give you two other scriptures that verify this point of view. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have the triune nature of man verified in Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians. Also in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, the writer of that epistle says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division, or the King James says, the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the word of God enables you to distinguish between what is soulish and sensual and what is from your spirit or what is spiritual and needs to be pursued in your life. Prior to salvation, the Bible said at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's Ephesians 2.12. So when you are without God, 
your life is primarily motivated by the soul, and the soul will carry you into darkness if you allow it. But when you are regenerated, then your life is infused with the presence of God, and your spirit can be the primary guiding force of your life with the indwelling of God's presence in you. That's the scenario we need to go after. That's the goal that God sets before every one of us. If you've never been born again, you should ask the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your heart. Ask him to wash you in his blood and ask him to give you this spiritual rebirth and it will bring you to completion and fullness and fulfillment in your life. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.